we're going to be talking, uh, we're going to begin the first of two weeks on Revelation, but we're really not uh, going to get into the book of Revelation that much, um, because we're going to spend, I decided rather than going through the book and addressing these things as we go, uh, rather to, to talk about the kind of the four main ways that the book of Revelation is interpreted and has been interpreted, um, and, then, uh, and, then the, and then also the three views on the, the, the millennium because uh, those are important things to understand. And then, and then when we go next week, um, we'll just kind of cover the, the, the area that we all decide as a class. We're gonna, afterwards, we're going to vote what we believe, which of these I'm joking. <laughs> and we're going to look at Revelation from that angle. That's yeah. That's coming out of uh, the recording. All right. So I did not write an introduction so that I wouldn't waste time uh, like I did last week and and run out of time. And I cut out a lot of stuff. So I better have enough time tonight. Um, all right. Uh, so uh, four main ways that the Book of Revelation has been interpreted um, throughout uh, Christian history. Number one, the first one on your handout is. So we'll get to this towards the end. Um, but, but right now we're going to talk about the four main views. I've got them at the very bottom, kind of the general like picture, help you, help you think of it. Uh, but the first way uh, that we're going to talk about is what's called the preterist view. The preterist view. Uh, preter, uh, which is, uh, it comes from the, the Latin word for past, for, for something that happened in the past. So essentially this is the view that, that Revelation and also the, uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, uh, that they were fulfilled almost entirely in the first century. Um, surround, it, all, it all came to pass, it all happened around the events of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. By the way, if you have questions while we're going, uh, go ahead and raise your hand and uh, I will um, try my best. Um, anyway, so, so what they believe is then that the, the first three chapters... Uh, which is uh, the, the kind of the introduction, John's introduction, and then the letters to the churches, um, they describe the state of the churches, the way that the churches were, um, just before uh, the fall of Jerusalem and, and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Um, it's important to know also, by the way, that there's two types of, of preterists. Uh, there's what we'd call full preterists, and they believe that everything in Revelation happened um, around, uh, was fulfilled by, by A.D. 70. Um, it, was, it happened in A.D. 70, and, and that we are now living in what is now the eternal state, essentially. Uh, there's no difference. We're living in the eternal state in a certain way. This is a much more liberal view uh, of of the book of Revelation. It really denies uh, the supernatural authorship of Scripture because they also affirm that it was written in 80, uh, 80 90-ish time. And so he's, John is just talking about stuff, or, or whoever the author is, as they would say, is just talking about stuff that that has already happened, and he's describing it. Um, it's, a, it's a very, they're very liberal. Um, most of these people probably aren't actually believers. Um, and then there's partial preterists. 
partial preterists believe that most of the proper most of the prophets most of the prophecies were fulfilled by AD 70 and that the book of Revelation was actually written in about 65 AD uh, but they still believe that that's just the, the fulfillment is up to chapter 19 and then after that that hasn't happened yet uh, that's still coming um, and so they believe that it was written uh, before AD 70 so they really they they affirm that it is predictive prophecy but it's just prophecy that's going to happen that ends up happening within the next uh, the next few years. So, um, most preterists believe that Revelation, again, was written during, uh, during. so if they're full, during, around the time of the fall, uh, or, or, sorry, full preterists uh, believe that it, that, uh, that this has all happened in the past, but the, the Christian ones, the partial preterists, believe that it, that it all happened, uh, was that John wrote this before AD 70, probably about AD 65. They also believe that John was writing specifically and only to the church in this day, in, in that time. Um, it's, it's, uh, um, that's what they think. And, and so it's much like, it's essentially much like we believe that the epistles, like Paul is writing to the Ephesians or the Colossians or whatever, and he's writing, or the Corinthians is probably a better example, or Galatians, writing to address situations that are specifically to those those people and they kind of have a similar view of revelation um, and, they, and, and essentially John is writing to encourage the church during a time of intense persecution which which he is we don't deny that um, and so they would for support for their view they would take a, a verse like Matthew 24, 34, that the verse where he says, this generation will not pass away. Remember when Jesus is talking, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. So they would take that, and then they would take, if you might as well open your Bibles to Revelation. Um, uh, and because we're going to, here's how far we're going to get into it tonight. Do, does someone want to read verse 1? <laughs> Someone read Revelation 1 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. All right, so uh, they take verses like that one from Matthew 24, 34 that I just quoted, and also Revelation 1, 1, which, which is talking, makes it sound like, oh, this is stuff that will soon take place. This is going to happen soon. Um, and, and in verse 19 also, if you look down there of chapter 1, he says, Right therefore the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And so they would take these verses and have the kind of understanding, all right, John has in mind this prophecy is something that's about to, that this, this stuff is about to take place. Um, so... They, they take those verses and they believe, okay, that shows uh, what we believe, what we call preterism. Um, there's also, if you've read uh, uh, Josephus, uh, the, the Jewish historian, and he details a lot of the events that took place around AD 70 when Jerusalem fell and around the destruction of the temple. And there is actually a lot of stuff in there that if you look at it, it sounds like some of this type of stuff, right? like some of this stuff that's... Uh, you can see uh, the, the general Titus's 
um, sacrifice of the pig on the altar is, is the abomination uh, that, that causes desolation. Um, you, you can see stuff like that and be like, okay, I can see why they might think some of that type of stuff. Um, uh, and then also there is um, in this, and then another thing that they, that they would argue is that since the book of Revelation does not, um, does not address at all the fall of Jerusalem or the destruction of the temple that did happen in AD 70, then there's no way it could be written in AD 90 after that happened because that was such a cataclysmic event that surely John would have said something. Um, in fact, in, in Revelation 11, John is told about to, to measure the temple. And he's talking about a, a temple that it, it seems like it might be in existence. Uh, so that those are those are some of the the reasons that they so, that they would support this. Just on that last issue, though, I, I just want to point out where that's not uh, again preterism isn't uh, it, that's not the, the view that that I hold or that this church teaches or that you hold. Uh, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I mean, it might be. Yeah, it might be. Um, uh, but but in that, uh, but but just so you know, that that temple thing—that's not an issue because he doesn't have to be talking the about the existing temple, and we know that because Daniel nine twenty-six and twenty-seven, and Ezekiel in Ezekiel forty through forty-eight, they both also talk about uh, a temple. And if you've ever, so if you're doing your yearly Bible reading and you get to, that's like one of the places that's tough for me when I get to Ezekiel 40 through 48, because it's just Ezekiel measuring, go over here and measure this. How long is that, son of man? It's this by this by this by this. It's just eight chapters of that. And so you're like, okay. Uh, but anyway, it's important to remember that the temple isn't in existence then. It has not been rebuilt yet. Um, so, so it's not it's not unknown. It's not foreign to the Bible to to speak of the the temple as the the future temple. It's going to be restored. So, so there's there's that reason. Also, the other reason they point to why why they believe preterism is a uh, is is makes the most sense is is because it is directly relevant then to the readers to the original readers. It's directly relevant to them. Um, so th those are the reasons. And the reason that I would struggle the most with it is that R.C. Sproul believed it. That, that's tough for me. <laughs> R.C. Sproul is a partial preterist. Um, and so I'm like, well, that, that causes me to be like, okay, I can't make quite as many jokes. Um, yeah, right? Uh, and, but, but problems, a bunch of problems with the, uh, with the preterist uh, position um, are, well, there's a lot, but I cut a bunch out. Um, but, but places, especially the Olivet Discourse, uh, they, they take passages like Matthew 24, 27, where he says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. They believe that that verse somehow refers to the Roman army's quick destruction of Jerusalem. Um, which, which wasn't quick. It was. It took a, a couple of years, and 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 actually, it moved from west to east, not east to west. So, so there's there's other verses like that. Uh, th this one, they believe Revelation seven four, where it talks about the hundred and forty four thousand. Uh, they believe. So, flip over to Revelation seven. You can see this. Um, 
So if you read, if you look at Revelation 7 in verse 4, he says, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then, I won't read 5 through 8, you can see what that says. But then in verse 9 he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So, preterists believe that that verse, and the, the 144,000 of verse 4, is the same group that is in verse 9. And that just doesn't, I mean, you can look at it, and that just, they have ways to try and explain that. So looking at it, that, that's just one of the, what uh, John Piper calls, that's the textual gymnastics. They do a lot of textual gymnastics to try and dance around this. Um, but it's clear that this is talking about the tribes of the sons of Israel, and it's 144,000, which they say is a symbolic number. But even if it is a symbolic number, it has no problem assigning the symbolic number to a, to a people that in just a few verses later is called a great multitude that no one could number. Um, so so there's, there's issues like that. And this would be the only place in all of the Bible where the tribes of Israel doesn't mean tribes of Israel. So um, uh, the people in these two groups are clearly in different places. One's on earth, one's before the throne in heaven. Um, and, then, and then the other, uh, the other reason why is that, well, especially for full preterists, the type of victory that we see so in Revelation 19 and following, that has not happened. There's nothing that even looks like that that could possibly be uh, explained. That, that does not, that, that just doesn't work. Uh, anyway, I don't want to spend too much time on each of these, just give you a couple, but, but there's a couple of the problems with that one. Um, and and my, my contention over all of these, these first ones, uh, the, the first three on your list is that they, it is, with all of them, it's really just, this does not seem to say, this does not seem to be what he's saying. As you read through Revelation, this, uh, thinking this way, that, that does not seem to be how he is speaking or what's going on. Um, so the second view you have on there is the, uh, the historicist view. Uh, the historicist view, and that's the, that's the belief that Revelation is a symbolic representation of history from the apostolic age to the end of the age, uh, from, from the time of its writing, essentially, to the, re, the return of Christ. So the belief that, that uh, the, the symbols throughout the book that are, that are everywhere throughout the book have, have to do with all kinds of events that have taken place throughout history, and it's this long period of time. So, so uh, 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 historicists have looked at it, and they've seen uh, different places where it's talking about popes and certain popes and, uh, and, and different kings and different leaders uh, that they've assigned different people to. Uh, they found, like, there's a place where I think it's supposed to be the French Revolution. Um, there's a place that's about the Protestant Reformation. Um, and it can be, and, and the, the thing, it, it can kind of be like constantly changing as time goes on, as, as newer interpreters make, make what has happened um, kind of what they've seen recently, and they kind of find it in the book of Revelation. Um, so, so they see essentially for, 
for the most part, they see some, or the more popular version of it, sees something like uh, like like this. Is um, and and here's the thing, though, with with uh, historicism, is it's not a common belief now, but throughout history, it, it really was. Um, but there's somewhere around 50 or so different interpretations of Revelation from from a historicist point of view. The kind of most common one. Uh, looks something like this. Chapters one through one through three represent it's not not the different churches, but seven different periods of time in the church. Uh, they're not letters to the churches. Chapters four through seven, which is the breaking of the seals, that's that's representative of of the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, and chapters eight through ten, which is the trumpet judgments, is a represent uh, representation of of the Roman Empire being invaded by the Vandals and the and the Huns and the Turks and all those people. Um, and then also, for Protestant uh, uh, historicists believe that uh, the Antichrist, without a doubt, is who? The Pope. the Pope. Yeah, if you've ever read, like, a page and a half of Martin Luther, you know that. <laughs> he, 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 he references uh, the Pope as the Antichrist fairly regularly. So they, they see the Pope, they see the papacy as... Um, as the Antichrist. In fact, in fact, they believe that so strongly that that it was uh, so obvious that those who it was so obvious to them that people who interpreted Revelation differently they they believed they were being satanically inspired. They they did not think you can't. That's how bad they saw the Pope. Um, so so they they got they think that of of the Antichrist. Uh, chapters eleven through thirteen, uh, they they believe is the true Church. That, that's describing the true Church and its fight against the Roman Catholic Church. Um, chapters fourteen and sixteen or through sixteen, which are the bold judgments, uh, they believe that's that's the, again the Church battling against uh, the, those are spoken. Or the, those judgments are against the Catholic Church or God's judgments on the Catholic Church. And 17 through 19 is, the, is about the true church, the true, true church's overthrowing of the Catholic Church. Um, so, uh, and, and so, but, but I want you to see that if, you, if you're living in the time just shortly after the Reformation, right, you can see this. This is, and you're reading Revelation, and you're coming to kind of the same conclusions that, that Martin Luther and John Calvin have been speaking. Um, you're like, yeah, this, this, is, this, this, this makes sense. In fact, I, I would say that's the greatest strength of this view, is that um, those who held this view are, you can guess, the, the reform, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, John Knox, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, um, the, all of those, the the most you know are are, are heroes of the Reformation, um, uh, but then also even a little later, John Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and even Charles Spurgeon uh, was a uh, historicist, and and again, so you you can see why this would have been. Um, with the understanding of what the Catholic Church has done, and what and 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 the you know the the, the way they talked about it, the Babylonian captivity of the church, the way they talked about it, you can see why this would be a, a, a popular view, a popular understanding. 
Um, however, the criticisms of it, it, it allows for just all kinds of interpretations. Um, what, what, uh, what represents what is changing, uh, what, what represents what is just constantly changing as time goes on. You can keep, you can just keep reading in your own stuff into it. Um, uh, people, you know, every generation, they're, they're seeing the end of the book in their generation. Um, uh, one, uh, again, like, like I said earlier, one historian pointed out that there's as many as 50 different interpretations of the meaning of Revelation among historicists. Um, and it is, it's very rare for them to find their writings and, and, and have them agree on, on, on everything. Uh, another version of it understands the rise of the beast. I mean, you can see this. Uh, the beast is, is the rise of Islam. And they, they see that in Revelation. So um, it, all of that, may, again, that makes it really hard to, to kind of nail down this single meaning of the text. So if you have the understanding, the belief about a scripture that we do, there's a single meaning to the text. That makes it hard. Um, and then another, another problem uh, with it is that th that view would mean almost nothing to the original readers. They would get, like, like none of them are going to be like, ah, this was probably referring to a future Catholic, you know, church. <laughs> it's, it, it, it would mean almost nothing to them. Um, all right, next view. Uh, I think I'm behind still. Next view. Uh, thank you for not asking questions until I catch up. Uh, the, the idealist view, or the spiritual view, did I write that in there? The idealist. Spirit, idealist, spiritual. Um, you can think of it both of those ways. Uh, they believe in an allegorical interpretation of Revelation. Uh, so, so, so essentially they believe, and if you see the little thing I gave you, there's no historical fulfillment. Uh, no ties to specific historical or future events. Um, this, was, is, this has a little bit of strength in that it was um, put forth by some of the early church fathers by, uh, it looks like uh, it had its uh, um, uh, origin in origin. And, uh, and uh, which, that's not that great because he was, he was crazy on a few things. But, but uh, Augustine, uh, Augustine later on uh, developed, it to Augustine or Augustine, uh, Augustine later on was a, was a proponent of this view of Revelation also. So he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a big name. That, that makes it important to study this view. Uh, so they believe that it, uh, the book of Revelation essentially symbolically represents the ongoing battle, the ongoing battle uh, between God and Satan or between good and evil that's, that goes on from generation to generation. Um, they, they essentially interpret it kind of like a, like a theological poem, maybe. Uh, it's, it's just like a representation of what's going on, but you can't really look too deep into the words. They kind of think of it as like the way we look at like the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Like it's a, it, it, it teaches principles. It teaches principles, but it's not, but they're not real events, right? There was never any real time in history where God was a physical lion and was sacrificed on a stone table. That's from Narnia. Um, and it teaches, so we, but we can read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia to teach our kids some, some of the principles in there. And that's kind of how they see it. There's principles that are demonstrating this age-long battle between God and Satan. And so the, the, the conflict throughout Revelation is supposed to show the themes of, of spiritual warfare throughout all of Christian history. 
Um, uh, the beast or, or the Antichrist uh, in this can, can essentially, they, they can use it, they can represent any or all forms, essentially all forms of, of political opposition to Christ and his kingdom. So, so Rome or any other state-sponsored type of persecution, uh, Christian idealists today would maybe see like the, uh, the U.S. government kind of trending in that direction to, to become, the, you know, the Antichrist. Um, and they and they see uh, the, the false prophet as as it represents all types, all forms of of uh, false Christianity and false religion. So it, that that could false religions that could be Islam. Islam could go in the the other one. It could be represented by the, uh, but definitely like the Catholic Church, they would see that in there. Um, uh, Mormonism, things like that. The false. Uh, so, so false prophet represents all types of false Christianity, and the harlot uh, from those chapters represents the church in all ages whenever it compromises with the world. Anytime it does that, it, that's, that's what that represents. Um, they see all the bull and trumpet judgments representing all of the natural disasters and catastrophic events that ever happen. Those can all be chalked up under there. Um, so... Uh, the, the strength of that view is that that's, it doesn't have to harmonize with the text anywhere. <laughs> it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to harmonize uh, the text of Scripture with the events of history. It doesn't have, to, doesn't have to worry about that. It doesn't have to worry about this means this, this means this. Uh, it um, doesn't have to do the thing that so many futurists do, which is reading every single news story and trying to see how it fits into Revelation. Uh, so they don't have that issue. That's, that's almost, an, it's almost a strong enough reason to join them. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> it's not biblical. Um, so, but the, yeah, the criticisms are, if we're supposed to understand it like symbolism, uh, so if it is symbolism, why is the symbolism in like Narnia, who's written by a man, way easier to understand? so much easier to understand than what we see in here. Um, and also, again, Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, uh, which, which we read, <laughs> it clearly indicates that these are things that are going to come to pass. It has this understanding of, of specific things. It also doesn't give any real hope and that there's no real consummation of all things. And it denies, uh, it denies reading Scripture with authorial intent. intent authorial intent, which is how we need to read scripture. Uh, by, by, so you're really allowing uh, no significance for what, whatever John thought he meant is not what he meant. He meant all of this other stuff that we see. Um, everything could mean, everything you see in there could mean anything or nothing. Um, it really is a, a, like when you think of the type of Bible studies where you just open the Bible and say, what does this mean to you? It's a, it, it's a what does this mean to you type of interpretation of, of revelation. So, uh, lastly, the futurist view. The futurist view. This is the view that we hold. <laughs> this is the view that, uh, I, I, I don't want to, because this comes up, and this is actually a good, uh, the amount of time, think about all of the teaching time in like Wednesday nights, Sunday nights, Sunday mornings, equipping hour classes, Sunday school classes, all of that time in the last two and a half years that has been devoted to 
the uh, proper views of revelation. Right, it's probably just right now. Yeah, and that is proportionately about how much time you should spend worrying about that. Um, it's not; it, these aren't. Um, it's it's important, and there's some there's some reasons that that are that that'll help us, um, and especially in the views of the millennium, uh, that help us with with our reading of the scripture, and, and one leads to another one, um, but. Uh, this is not again. This isn't. Uh, this wouldn't be a. If we found out that we had some preterists in our church, that wouldn't be a. Like that's not a. Oh, that can happen easily because it doesn't. You can just tell how, how little it affects a lot of of what uh, of what we actually teach and talk about. So um, I might have de-emphasized it. A, a little too much. It's probably a little more important than what I just said. Um, but it's not of ultimate importance. It's not a. It's not a shunning people at the dinner at the Thanksgiving table because they hold a different uh, view on, on Revelation. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're or, yeah, or the Christmas table, yeah. So, futurist view. This is the view that the events of Revelation uh, chapters 4 through 22, um, as well as the Olivet Discourse, uh, that Matthew 24, uh, all occur in the future. Futurist. Very easy to, to remember. Um, so... When it, so so what we so back to that uh, the preterist argument from Matthew twenty four thirty four where he says this generation will not pass away until um, these things uh, we, we believe that that means uh, these things pass away begin that means that generation that begins to see these things will not pass away until they see the end of these things uh, it's not a difficult way to interpret it. Um, Anyway, uh, and, and we see that, uh, and if you look at, go back to 119, um, if you read that, here, here's how we see the divisions of the book. We see it in verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So, so we see the, the book divided like that. Chapter 1 is what you have seen. It's talking about the, the past. Chapters 2 through 3 is what is now, what we're seeing in the, what the, the letters to the churches. That's what's going on right now. 4 through 22 is what is going to take place. Um, the Futurist view takes a literal, a more literal interpretation of the, not, not staunch liberal, not, I want to differentiate, it doesn't have to be like literally horses with, snake tails and but but not necessarily literally in that sense but literal in the sense of we read revelation with a historical grammatical interpretation the same way we read the rest of the prophecy um so uh and you can see uh, so and, and you can see the the futurist view contrary to what a lot of people think you can see the futurist view in some of the writings of, of many of the early church fathers before origin uh, clement uh, Justin Martyr and Tertullian and Irenaeus, they, they all have um, they all have futurist view uh, interpreted. It looks like that's how they interpret the book of Revelation also. Um, so 
chapters 4 through 19 refer to the uh, tribulation period that we so so the futurist view connects a lot of revelation to uh, Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9 and and so the uh, seven year tribulation period mentioned in Daniel 9:27 takes place in 4 through 19 chapters 4 through 19 chapter 13 describes a literal future empire by, led by a literal <coughs> leader a political and 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 religious leader there's the the two beasts uh, they could be the same person and they could be two um, uh, chapter chapter 17 uh, represents uh, an apostate church a church that has fallen away uh, chapter 19 is the second coming of Christ and the battle of Armageddon. And chapter 20, we'll talk about more here in a bit, is a, uh, a, a literal uh, time, a literal millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign of Christ, a, a literal period of time that will uh, take place where, where Christ reigns in a different way than he does in the eternal state. Okay? Uh, 21 and 22 is what happens after the millennium and the eternal state. Uh, and, and we interpret the, uh, again, so, so the, the point is that, that we interpret the last book of the Bible that the same way we try and interpret the rest of the Bible with this historical, grammatical understanding. We take into account the, the genre that he's writing in. We take into account uh, where he's at in history. And we take into account the grammar that he's using. Um, so, so it's not denying the use of symbols. We're not saying that things that, that are clearly symbols aren't actually symbols. They're literally those things. Um, it, it, it's not, we're, we're not saying that. Um, like a bunch of scary, many-headed dragons and, and things with ten horns and stuff. No, that's not, not what we're saying. Um, uh, that, but, but we are saying that which John meant to be symbolic is symbolic. And, and literally interpreting this book means plainly interpreting the symbols like we do in the book of Daniel. So, for example, the book of Daniel, we, we know that um, there's a couple of places where he's talking about Alexander the Great. In fact, when I was in, I think I mentioned this before, I'm not sure from where, but when I was in uh, college, I had... Uh, one of my classes, the, the professor asked us uh, to introduce ourselves, to go around the room and say, say our name and what our life goal was. And we all went around the room and said something. I think I said, by that time, I think I said something about ministry. And then she went after me and she said, my name is this and my life's goal is to disprove the historicity of the book of Daniel. <laughs> That's what she said her life's goal was. And, and which is like, okay. Well, I'm going into ministry, um, and and at that and and at that time, uh, I, I didn't I I I hadn't been a, an actual Christian for very long, so I didn't quite understand why that was such a big deal for. I'm like, what? What's wrong with that? You've got a problem with the lion's den story? That's one of my favorite Sunday schools. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's actually the second half of the book of Daniel uh, where, where uh, it, the, the prophecy is just so accurate about what's coming up that they have to... They, uh, so, so there's the two, there's the arguments, and, and what her goal actually was was to prove that Daniel was written, or at least those portions were written after 
after they happen, or written after, or written sometime in the New Testament period. But just that's what she wanted to prove because the other alternative for her is they're not, and that means the Bible's supernatural, and there is a God, and I have to repent and and stop being this UNC professor that I am right now. Um, but anyway, so anyway, we, we, when we say we literally interpret the book of Daniel, we, we interpret plainly the symbols. So it prophesies about Alexander the Great, and it's obvious from the way it describes him um, that, and, and the swiftness with which he conquered and is the king of Greece, um, that, that this is who it's talking about. Um, but it, 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 descri- it doesn't say Alexander the Great. It calls him a goat or a leopard. We're not like... When, when, so when we're in history classes and the teacher talks about Alexander the Great and as a man, we don't go, the Bible says he's a goat. <laughs> <laughs> public schooling. <laughs> Denying God. That's not, no, we, we interpret symbols plainly the way they're meant to be interpreted. So we're not against uh, the use of symbols. Um, and we're not saying that, that, it's, that all of those things are exactly literal like they are. But, again, it goes with uh, the, the historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture that we hold to. Um, uh, even though there are, I, I should say, there are a lot of futures like the, the Left Behind books, they all do. Like, they take a wooden literal translate. Like, they really do. Like, I still remember I was reading that book. Um, and... That they're flying this plane, and there's this army of pe- demons on horses, and the horses are breathing fire, and they're flying in the air, and they have snake tails, and and they really are. And I, I remember reading all. So they they take a really wooden, which you know, maybe uh, maybe, but uh, it does not have to be that way. Um, Anyway, so it, it really is this view, the the futurist view, that the partial preterist uh, view. Um, this uh, it really is this view and the partial preterist view that are most common now in in, in faithful Christian circles. Um, so so I, I uh, and, and a lot of that is because of uh, the, um, what what I see is the really the main negative thing. I'll get into that in a second. Uh, <laughs> let, let me just say a couple other things about that. Um, the, the partial preterist view, uh, so, so that's kind of the one we, we argue against more. Um, and so against that view, with some of the stuff we talked about, the partial preterist view, it's, it's most important to kind of establish when John wrote the book of Revelation. Because uh, the partial preterist, who still, like R.C. Sproul, who still believes that the, the Bible is a supernatural document and believes that this is clearly predictive prophecy. He believed that it was therefore written in about AD 65, and John was predicting what was about to happen um, in around AD 70. Um, but uh, we know that uh, from, from uh, uh, Irenaeus, who's, uh, who is the disciple of Polycarp, who is the disciple of John, in his writing against heresies, he talks about how John wrote during the end of the reign of, of Domitian. Um, so, yeah, which is, yeah, which was, his reign ended in actually 96 AD. And even if it was the beginning uh, uh, of Domitian, it was, that's, that was 81. And there was a, several other emperors between, there's like three, I think, between Nero and him. Um, 
And so, so there's that, and then there's just some obvious stuff like in, in the, the writing in, in Ephesus, if you're still there, uh, the church in Ephesus in uh, uh, Revelation 2. Um, uh, he says in verse 6, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Um, so there, that, that's an issue too, because... Um, if he did write in, in AD 65, if John really wrote in AD 65, that would have... Hmm? There were no Nicolaitans then. Yeah, well, there was that, that, if there were, that wasn't an issue for sure in Ephesus, because that actually overlaps when Paul wrote to the Ephesians and to Timothy, uh, which seems to indicate that, there's, that like, that's not going on there at the time. Um, and the, and the, the Nicolaitan heresy we don't think happened until, until after that. Um, partial preterists are the ones who would say, oh, nope, it did, because uh, they have to. Um, uh, but we also know that, it, that uh, the church of, of Smyrna didn't exist during Paul's ministry. So this would be a very young, young, young church. Like it, that's, it's very tough to, to stretch it in there. And uh, in, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, he commends them, uh, commends them often. Um, and and uh, this would have been, he commends the Colossians often. The Colossians are tied to the, to the area of Laodicea. Um, and and so, this, at most, this would be a three-year gap between when Paul wrote Colossians and John wrote um, Revelation. And, and, you know, we all know how John feels about the church at Laodicea, how Christ felt about it. And so it just, it seems those are what, who Paul was writing to in Colossians and, and who John's writing to here. That... that uh, that doesn't. That just doesn't seem right. That early date just it, it really stretches uh, what we know about 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 history and about authorship of other stuff. Um, also, we know that that, uh, and I think I remember when Gary was teaching Colossians that the uh, earthquake decimated the city in, in AD sixty one, um, and like just like, and it would have taken way more than four years to get to the place where where John calls them rich. Um, they, they they weren't at this time. It, it's we do not think most historians do not believe um, in any that that Laodicea could have been described as rich. Uh, at the time that, uh, the, the, at, at eighty sixty five, when they say this, uh, so that that's important to understand when we're when we're talking about partial preterism or preterists. Um, but the the main negative thing about futurists, the, by far the main negative thing, is all of the crazy futurists who are running around on TBN making us look stupid. Um, and they, they, they're the ones who make all, who just, like I talked about, they're just combing through the news headlines trying to find, oh, this means this, this means this. Um, so, so you got, or they, you turn on uh, their church, like they're up on the, <laughs> I said I've seen John Hagee. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever flipped through and seen him on his, um, uh, or on, on his stage without just a ridiculous amount of, of diagrams and timelines and stuff behind him because he wants to connect all this stuff. And the ones who go crazy about the blood moons. Yeah. Like every time there's a blood moon, it's 
Jesus is coming back. Gee, there's a blood moon. It's and not going to happen just in the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, well, they don't think like that. I remember seeing, uh, what's that guy's name? Perry Stone. Um, so I, I still remember about the most, uh, it sounds very unloving as a father, but uh, uh, about the most, or the most frustrating Sunday of my life was when I gave that as a sermon illustration, I talked about the time when our daughter Ava was in the um, hospital with uh, uh, meningitis. And, but by this time, just to my credit, so she's still hooked up to a lot of things, but they had told us that it wasn't uh, the kind of meningitis that was, she just kind of was going to have to recover from it and be better. And she wasn't viral, in danger. Wasn't yeah, it was viral. It wasn't uh, spinal. And, and so, so we had gotten that. But we're in there on Sunday morning, and, and I'm like, I, I want to see a church service or something. Man. And so I flip on TV, and I'm watching this guy named Perry Stone. And he is preaching on, like, he made it sound like America was like God's program for bringing in the, the and, and he has, like he has all of these American flags and a literal replica of the U.S. Capitol behind him with a bald eagle on top of it. And he's preaching through, like, and that's just always there, I guess, on all of his shows. And he was just, he was doing just predictive prophecy, and it was all, like, everything had to do with America. And that's it. Nothing else known. Everything in the Bible is for Americans. And it is just the way it seems. Anyway, so there's guys like that, John Aggie, Jack Van Impey. I don't know if you guys have watched him. He and his wife, Rexella, who are on. Uh, guy, knows, guy knows his scripture. He's got so many verses memorized, if you've ever seen it. But they, they have a half an hour show where they just take headlines, and Rexella re reads the headline, and then Jack Van Impey tells you why, where it is in Revelation or Daniel. And that's just all they, and he's been doing this for as long as I can remember. He's still doing, in fact, I think he just went way overboard and actually predicted, a, a, I think. Any of you guys Jack Van Impey fans? No. Good. Um, <laughs> that was a test. Uh, he, I think he just went way overboard and actually predicted, did the predicting of a date, a specific date. Um, for the second coming. Yeah, for the second coming. Yeah. Which is, he's, he's old enough now, he can make a safe, like... 15 years and <laughs> don't have to worry about it. But uh, anyway, so uh, those, are, those are the views. Those are the four views. And again, I, I think that the futurist view um, is, is the one, again, that makes, it, it's, it's the way, it makes the most sense of a literal, uh, the, just the way we, we read the rest of the scripture, to understand it. Uh, with it, like this is, and, and just when you start reading it, and it's really hard to do because we all have, all our, our heads are all full of all kinds of things we've heard about Revelation throughout all our lives. But if you're just able to sit and read it, it just seems obvious that John is talking about something that, that's coming, uh, something that's coming in the future. Um, and, uh, and, there's, and, and there's too much, uh, too much splitting and messing with stuff in the other ways to, to make it to make it work right. Anyway, so that leads to now you can get out your little uh, this thing and um, that handout from Tim Challies. Uh, 
and and we're going to talk about views on the millennium because this is uh, this is this is this is a little more like that stuff that we just talked about isn't as well known. But the views on the millennium, more people have kind of a uh, more of an understanding or have talked about or heard about that. And essentially, it's um, and so you maybe want to turn there to Revelation 20. So essentially, what do we do with Revelation chapter 20? It is what this is about, um, and we'll look from. Uh, the least popular views to, to the most popular views. So uh, the first one we'll talk about is post-millennialism. Post-millennialism, you can see it right there in the middle, kind of represented. You can see that a preterist or a, or a, a historicist might uh, believe that in one of its two ways. Um, but but post-millennialism is, is the, the belief essentially that Christ returns after uh, after the millennium, uh, uh, yeah, that Christ returns after the millennium. The second coming is after the the, the, the millennium. It may be a literal hundred or maybe a literal thousand years. It may not be a literal thousand years, um, but essentially they believe. So if you look at that, they believe that that uh, there, there's going to be this gradual defeat of Satan throughout time. Um, as, as time goes on, the gradual defeat of Satan, the gradual defeat of, or the, the gradual uh, Christianization of, of the world, it's going to happen. Like, uh, so if you look at that, church age, society progressively improves. Society will get better and better as Christ as Christ reigns, but not from a from a literal throne on earth. And then sometime, and so you can either believe that uh, that that just kind of happens sometime and it's undefined, and there's eventually a time where yes, this is where it is. This is where the millennium starts, where we're at a po- we're at a point where Christ is is reigning, like it's said in Revelation 20, where Satan's been been bound and, and all of that type of stuff. Um, so uh, they believe that. They believe that uh, the church is the fulfillment of Israel. They believe that the kingdom of God is um, essentially that the kingdom of God in, in every way we can think about it is, is spiritual and we experience it as the gospel spreads. So that we, we believe, or I believe, that there's a, a spiritual aspect to the kingdom of God. Of course, it's going on right now, but there's a, a greater fulfillment coming, but they have a more of an understanding of its, its spiritual um, in the way we, and we experience, as the, experience it as the gospel spreads out to the ends of the earth. Um, and they believe that the millennium is an age that takes place before Christ returns. They don't have any kind of view of like a separation of the rapture or the second coming. It's all one event, the second coming. Uh, it's before that happens. And that's where the vast majority of people on the earth become Christians. And then that kind of ushers in the return of Christ. And it, come, it comes so essentially that the, there's a huge difference in that they believe that uh, it, it comes gradually rather than what what uh, a premillennialist believes, which is that it comes suddenly, uh, that the, the millennium begins, the second coming happens suddenly. So, they, and they take, uh, I didn't write it down, so I have to turn there. And they take a passage like Isaiah 2, um, Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3, uh, where Isaiah says, 
It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord uh, from Jerusalem. So they, they take that passage and they say this, that looks like like people kind of kind of being convinced and coming to the understanding and all collectively deciding to come together um, and, and going to worship uh, the Lord. And there's actually a few post-millennialists in what we call the, the theonomist movement that's a little popular. And I, I worked with um, uh, a guy who, who went to seminary with me who was a post-millennialist, and I was so surprised. I didn't know at that time much about the different views, but I knew that they weren't there weren't very many of them, um, but uh, and so just so you can see how, like, because I'm sure when 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 I when you read this, so society progressively improves. What do you what do you guys think? World War got here. They're they're pretty much yeah. He would think okay, World War One should have ended this, and then there, yeah, I doubt there's a lot of Christian police officer post millennialists, um, and and. and uh, and so you, you see that, and you're like, there is no way. Do they, do they not watch the news? Do they not watch TV? That, that's impossible. But uh, this guy I worked with at Starbucks my first year of seminary, he explained to me in a way that, it may, okay, I can see this. Um, so he didn't just ignore everything going on around, uh, around us, but he said, um, in a little while, in a few generations, um, Christians are going to be the only ones who are still having kids and having very many kids. Um, and, and as we raise our kids and keep them out of the universities, within a few generations, <laughs> that's what he said, within a few generations, Christians will vastly outnumber believers. And he does have some numbers on that, that the birth rate between Christians and and. And, and atheists and unbelievers is is a is like almost a full kid, like between like so you take two, it's like almost a full kid per couple, um, and and it's going down on one end and going up on the other. The problem is there Islam is also is higher than Christianity, um, so and and Mormons are also pretty high also. Uh, so per husband or per family? Per <laughs> yes. Um, so, so you can, so just to kind of defend them a little bit, you can see kind of that, like, as you see, and, and, and I, I'm reminded of that every time I see, like, like the, you know, another victory for the transgender movement, and, the, and as abortion becomes more and more like, this is necessary, this is a right, um, and, and the devaluing life, not one, seeing kids as a, as an obstacle to getting to live for yourself. You see that more and more, like, yeah, man, okay, I can, I can see a little bit of that point. But, um, uh, but there's uh, other reasons why that's not, that's not good other than that it doesn't look like society. Um, amillennialism, amillennialism teaches, uh, and, and that's amillennialism means, essentially means the in, in, inaugurated millennium. Uh, that's the understanding that the kingdom of God was inaugurated when Christ rose from the dead. And that, that's the belief that the millennium is, 
is figurative. So if you look at your little thing there, that, that uh, the, the millennium is essentially that whole age in between the, the resurrection of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That's, that's all the millennium. The millennium, the thousand years, is a, is a figurative or it's, it's spiritual, and it, imply, it applies to the, to the entire church age. And they also see uh, uh, no difference between the, the church is the fulfillment of Israel, like uh, the, the church is the continuation of Israel. Um, so, so essentially, so if you look at Revelation 20, they read that and they believe that that is going on right now. That is the age that we're in right now. Uh, that, that is currently happening. Um, they... they um, defend this with what they call the, the two-age theology, which is they, they look at Scripture and they say, look, Scripture seems pretty clear that there is this life and the life to come. This age and the age to come. That's two. This age, the age to come, that's two. Therefore, there, there's no room for this kind of intermediate state, this intermediate kingdom. Um, this, 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 this millennium time. There's no room for that. There's this age, the age to come. Therefore, as we look at the scripture and we see that, we, 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 this is what we have to interpret Revelation 20 as. Um, so uh, uh, so they, they see the last days as being initiated at the resurrection, which is, which is a right sense. There's a sense in definitely in which the last days are initiated. Uh, at, the, at the resurrection during the, the during the church age, uh, there's a definite reality to, to say that we are living in the last days. You can say that, um, but it also de it de-emphasizes much of the strict uh, kind of the, the more literal interpretation of, in, in fact, of, of a lot of the Bible, not not just Revelation. Um, they, they really. Uh, so, so they change a lot of the, the promises that are that are made to Israel uh, into promises for for everyone, and you got to kind of be careful on that because there's some sense in which we can apply some of them, but some sense in which we definitely can't apply them. Um, and so, uh, they do though what they do they do rightly understand, and this is their view that uh, contrary to post millennial is that the church will continually be hated in this world. Continually be hated in this world. It's the church's role uh, to suffer until we get to um, this, this middle part of Revelation 20 where Christ returns and, and, and saves us. Um, so uh, that, that's kind of what uh, amillennialism is. Any questions so far? Because I want to spend most of the time, but it's only 26 minutes, uh, talking about Premillennialism. Any questions? Mm -hmm. You all understand Revelation to this point perfectly. Yes. Perfect. Awesome. All right. Uh, <laughs> you can easily say that because all we really did was get through verse one. one. Was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got it. Got verse one. Um, all right. So premillennialism. Premillennialism, and and this is. Uh, the reason I want to spend the most time on this is because it's what uh, we it's it's the official teaching position of our church. It's not a, a necessary for membership thing, um, like, but uh, 
but you, you're not going to probably be, we're not going to probably invite you to teach if you're an amillennialist or a postmillennialist. We want you to come to church, be a part of stuff. Um, and it's not on the membership application where you have to check off a box. And if you remember the membership application recently, we don't have your millennial view on there. There are churches that do. So, <laughs> uh, so if you thought our membership applications were strict and hard. Uh, so this is uh, premillennialism, then, is the, the view that the second coming comes before or pre-millennium. Um, it's, it's a time where, uh, so the millennium, then, is a time where Christ reigns on earth uh, that is, uh, usually we say a, 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 a literal thousand years, but it could mean a, 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 period, you know, a period of time. So there's some premillennialists who they still hold to. There is a literal um, time that we call the millennium. It doesn't necessarily have to be exactly a thousand years. I wouldn't necessarily say it's going to end on the minute. Like, I don't think you have to hold that view. Um, but uh, uh, a literal thousand years, a time where the, the reign of Christ on earth is different. The reign of Christ is different than it is in, um, in, in the eternal state, uh, but also much different than it is right now. And so there are um, uh, there's several passages that amillennials will point to in order to, to demonstrate uh, what they call the two-age model. So it's essentially anywhere they look that talks about this age and the age to come. Um, but there's a, there's a kind of a good understanding with, with any of them, but maybe we'll look at one here in a second. Um, but there, there's, a, so there's a present age, and then the immediately following comes judgment and an eternal state. Um, Amillennialists will uh, look at a few different passages. One, I think we'll look at this one in a second. 1 Corinthians 15, because uh, that, that's a big one for them. But, uh, but, there are, but there are many good reasons before we look at that to dismiss that understanding of just, just reading any passage that says the age and then the age to come, of just saying that there, that means that there's only two ages, there's no place for this millennial uh, reign of Christ. And that's the, the, what we call the principle of, of telescoping, telescoping <clears throat> prophecy, which is where you're like seeing it from, uh, you're seeing it from a distance, but as you get closer, you can tell it's, it's something different. So, so like the way it's, the reason it's called telescoping, like so every morning when I take my kids to school, I'm driving towards the mountains, which is awesome. And you see the mountains and it looks like one mountain range right in front of me. But once you get closer to the mountains, you realize they're not actually all right next to each other. There's this one, and this one that I thought was the same size as this one is actually way bigger, but it's way back here. Uh, but from a distance, they look like they're right next to each other. But as you get close, you can tell they're, uh, so that, that's, that's what we call it. And, and, and we know that there's prophecies like that in the Bible because we see that throughout the Old Testament. We're talking about the first coming of Christ. Uh, prophecies in the Old Testament that seem to indicate that once the Messiah came, everything would be made right. But once Christ is actually on the scene, you realize that his coming is actually going to take place in stages. Um, and he, as he gets there, and you, you find that out. And remember, and that's what the disciples expected. Remember, they're asking him that question. Now is it the time? Now is the time you're going to, to, to uh, bring about your kingdom? Is, it, is this the time? Um, and so, like, the best place to... So turn to Isaiah uh, 61. 
Isaiah 61, um, verses 1 and 2. And so you should recognize this passage. Because it was quoted in the passage of Scripture that Travis preached from in Luke 4, like four years ago. <laughs> uh, so Luke 61, 1 and 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So, that's a messianic prophecy, and you see it, and what things are you expecting of the Messiah? Just from that, just shout some out. Proclaim liberty to the captives, open the prison. Yeah. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Yeah. Uh, Proclaim the, or to, to see the vengeance of our God. Yeah. Comfort those who mourn. Yes. So, so you've got all of those things, right? You see, you see all of those things in that thing, in that in that passage. You see all of these descriptions of what we can expect from the Messiah, and so that's what they they have that understanding. Now, if you flip over to look to Luke four, Luke four, and you remember this story uh, of Jesus starting in verse sixteen, Luke four sixteen, we see. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed, uh, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, if you read 61, 1 and 2, and Jesus is saying that applies to who? Himself. Himself. What part did he leave out? The day of vengeance. Yeah, he left that out. Now, there's no reason for the original readers of, of Isaiah to, to think that, that like this, this all seems like it's going to happen at the same time. It's not a contradiction. Jesus isn't contradicting it by saying this, second, this last part of verse 2 is, is at a later date. He's not contradicting himself. He's not contradicting the word of God. He's just, he's just now making it known to them that this, this first part is fulfilled today. And it's not that the rest of it's not going to be fulfilled, but it's not going to be fulfilled yet. And so, so you can see that that principle is already in the scripture. So that's there. So, so making the argument when, when you see places where it talks about this age and the age to come and saying, ah, oh, there's no room in there for another thing, that, that's forgetting what we learned from Jesus' first coming about how we can look at, at prophecy and what it can look like. Um, so now we're able to look back and see that there are some indications that, it, that, that things might take place in stages. Um, and it's also evident upon reading uh, some of these passages that they don't, um, 
that they don't uh, disqualify uh, that any of these passages that we read. So this is where. So turn to First Corinthians 15. Um, that, they, that it doesn't disqualify a gap between the two. There's no disqualification of having a gap between the two periods. And this is First uh, Corinthians 15 is actually a, a amillennialist uh, proof text. There's a few places they like in there. Um, uh, but if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, someone read verses 23 and 24. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. All right, so I maybe should have had you read more than that, but but for the sake of time, so so he's talking about, so 1 Corinthians 15 is the famous chapter on, on what? What's it famous for talking about? Resurrection. Resurrection. Um, so in verses 22 and 23, or 23 and 24, you see, uh, when he's talking about the resurrection, he says, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then that is coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and, and every authority and power. Well, so they look at that, uh, that then there in verse 24, and they say, look, he, he comes, and, the, and, the, and uh, those who belong to Christ rise, and then it's the end. There's no, that, that's what happens. There's, not, there's nothing that happens between, um, that this is their point, there's nothing that happens between the, the period in 23 and the then that starts verse 24. Um, but um, that the, well, actually this one is a, is a, there's a, there's a Greek rule behind this because that Greek word for then um, right there, um, it doesn't have to mean immediately. And there's a Greek word that means immediately. That's not it. Um, it, it can, it, but then just, you know, means that uh, can just mean a succession of events so it is it's stating and it's, it's saying there's an order but it's not necessarily saying it's something that happens immediately afterwards it's just a succession of events just like it does um, it, if you look at verse because I mean think about this in verse 23 that implies there's a long gap because uh, in this order Christ the first fruits then it is coming. Those are, that's the same. Well, that's not the exact same word, but it's a, but it's a, with a different prefix. <laughs> it says it is the same then there, but it's a, a different prefix. But so you notice, because um, because how long is the difference between Christ's resurrection? Is there a gap between Christ's resurrection and our resurrection? Yeah, it, that's going on like two thousand years now. Um, getting getting close to that. So, so it doesn't, like right in there, you can see it can mean, it can clearly mean a succession of events. It does not have to mean uh, immediately upon the next one. And, um, and uh, there's, there's several more verses where they do that. But, but if you kind of have that principle that, no, this, just, just because it says it that way doesn't, doesn't mean immediately. It's just pointing to an order. Um, there are other places like that, but the, again, the strongest arguments are, are really nothing more than, uh, than something that sounds like this seems like it means this. Um, it's, it's not, this seems like it means that there's no room for some intermediate state where Christ reigns on earth and death 
and rebellion can still exist there. Because that's what we believe happened, that there's still death and there's still the ability to rebel during the millennial kingdom. Uh, but, but even in those, and even also in those places, it's also important to notice, like in 1 Corinthians 15 and in other places like in, uh, I think, Romans 8, uh, Paul's point in those passages, he's never, his point is never to set out in an in, in eschatological timeline uh, it's, it's in that place, it's specifically to encourage and to give hope or to teach doctrine. Um, it's not, he's not trying to teach uh, end-time stuff necessarily. He's just talking about facts. So, so with that in mind, this is, this is why, uh, this is kind of the, uh, the, the hinge part of premillennialism. We, we, therefore, we need to judge these scriptures, these scriptures that, aren't, that kind of mention in time stuff with with uh, and, and we need to judge those scriptures um, by the much more clear teaching of Revelation 20, which is in fact interested in establishing an order of events and and is actually the, the fullest and most comprehensive passage in the Bible on the second coming. Um, so so rather than taking the more obscure passages to judge the clear passage. We need to look at the clear passage and make sure it's consistent with uh, the rest of Scripture and, and, and harmonize them in the same way we harmonize the Gospels. Um, we don't, uh, and that's the other thing that, that why I'm a premillennialist is because it doesn't pit Scripture against Scripture. It doesn't like, here's these Scriptures and here's these ones. Which one is the most convincing? And that, 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 Hermeneutically, that can never, ever, 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 ever be your, um, your, your, the way you study Scripture. You can never have that principle when you're studying Scripture. That where you look at one passage, you're like, I don't get that one, but I do get this one, and I like what it says. Um, you, you have to. If you, if you are going to be consistent with your belief that the Bible is the Word of God, you don't get to have that. You, they, you understand that these, all, these are all the inerrant word of God and I need to if, if I don't understand if this looks contradictory that's that's on that I need to work harder I need to figure this out um, I don't just go ah, I don't get that one I like this one um, that that and working with youth and college students um, it is always some form of that that leads them into craziness. Throwing when they when they grow up in the church and then they start putting all kinds of weight on one thing, and and just not caring about the rest. Um, so that was not in here at all. But it's important. That, you know, it is important that we that that has to be our approach to scripture, and that is one of the reasons why I'm a premillennialist because I see that in here it harmonizes. Scripture. So, so then, is there biblical evidence for an intermediate time where Christ reigns as king, but prior to an eternal state? Yes, there are, and I have a bunch of those passages written down, but I think I'm going to pick two, um, maybe. Oh, here, one of them, so someone look up Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. And uh, someone else look up uh, Zechariah 8, 4 through 5. So who's got the Isaiah passage? I should, you got Isaiah 2, 2 through 4? Yep. Who's got, um, what was the second one I said? Zechariah 8, 4 through 5. Who's got that? Wes, 
And then let's have someone else look up Isaiah 24, 21 through 23. Lori, thanks. All right, so just if you want to write them down, there's, uh, there's Psalm 72 is another one we're not going to look up, but it's because it's 20 verses. But it's a psalm that's generally seen as a prophecy of the messianic reign. Um, and we see all kings bowing down before God, and we see that he reigns to the ends of the earth. Yet we see also in that psalm that there are needy people, that there's oppressed, that there's the poor, that there's afflicted, and that there's children, which doesn't line up with the eternal state. Um, Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, who, who had that? All right, yeah, go ahead, Tim. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Okay, so contrary to that, we read that passage for post-millennialism because they kind of see, oh, this looks like this. So contrary to that, and also that passage, the reason we looked up that one is because it's almost exactly the same as the prophecy from Micah. 4, 1 through 3. But in that passage that Tim read, we see that, that the Lord is reigning from Zion, which is, which is Jerusalem. And we see, again, nations streaming to him, uh, streaming to it during a time of peace. But we also see the Lord judging between nations. Which, which, so, so we have, when you put those things together, those are, those are things that aren't happening now, and they don't happen in the eternal state. They can't both be happening at the same time in the eternal state. They're not both happening now. Therefore, there's got to be this inter, uh, intermittent time. Uh, Isaiah 11, 1 through 9 is another similar one. We won't look at that, but it talks about, it's the passage where the earth is the Lord, the fullness thereof. The earth is, uh, the earth, and we see in that passage, the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord. We see him reigning with justice. We see that's the passage where it talks about the wolf lying down with the lamb. Um, but we also again see him uh, judging on, on account of the poor. We see him defending the afflicted and we see him slaying the wicked. So we see both of those things. There's some sort of Christ is reigning. God is reigning. The Lord is reigning in a way that we're not seeing it now. But it's not, that's not what's going to be happy. There's not going to be any more slain of the wicked uh, in the eternal state. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, we won't look there either, but that's a, that's a good one because it talks about aging. Uh, so that's a good messianic prophecy. It talks about the, the, the coming kingdom. And in that one, you see all of this talk, again, about peace and, and that type of stuff. But it also talks about that the youth... Uh, the one of the that youth will die at the age of a hundred, like like that's a good thing, and and um, and that uh, there's uh, so essentially that the lives will be longer. It's not talking about the cessation of death. And I, the amillennialist guy I read was talking about that it's well, he's just kind of using their terms to represent the cessation of death. But that doesn't make sense to represent the cessation of death by talking about not the cessation of death, but talking, but talking about the just a longer life, but, but still talking about death. Like, it doesn't say they'll live longer. It says they'll die later. Um, so, so there's that one, and then Zechariah 8, 4 through 5. Who had that? Just 4 and 5? Yeah, 4 and 5. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, weep with staff and hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. All right, so that, so we just read those two, but Zechariah 8 is another passage that talks about, um, again, it's a, the, the, a messianic reign, uh, the Lord reigning in this, in this kind of day of the Lord type of, um, uh, it's, it sounds like an end times type of place. But in that section that I had Wes read, what, uh, what, did, you, what did you talk about? They're old. Yeah, they're old. There's old people who still need canes. And there's boys and girls. Yeah. Boys and girls. So there's still age going on in, in that passage. Um, Zechariah 14, 16 through 19. We won't go to that one. But again, that's another one about the Lord reigning, but still talking about there's rebellion taking place and that there is a, a future judgment coming. All right, Isaiah 24, 21 through 23. Who had that one? Go ahead, Lord. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. All right, so... In that one, this is a this is a really interesting one because here we again we jump into a place where Isaiah is talking about uh, the final judgment, and there's this specific time, there's a specific period between. If you look in verse 22, uh, or 20, on that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in prison, and after many days. They will be punished. So there's a. It says many days, but there's a, that many days is a is a period of time between when you see the kind of like the, the sheep and the goats judgment when Christ returns the first time and, and separates and, and sets some aside and um, and where Satan and it says the heavenly beings are also gathered with them and and set aside in prison. And there's actually a lot, if you look at like if you compare Revelation 24, this this that last passage with some of the stuff you read in Revelation 19, you see that the the different stuff about the kings of the earth and and the host of heaven or Satan and his angels being gathered together, put in a prison. We see the word prison. Uh, that's what the abyss is called in, in verse 20, uh, uh, verses one through three and verse seven of Revelation 20. Um, so we see that that many days time. In, in verse 22, it can easily be, like, just seems like it would have to be the, the millennium, the millennial time, the, the Revelation uh, 20 time, because that's the time where they're gathered together awaiting to be finally punished. And we don't see that. Um, and so, so there's, in addition to easily, I think, easily being, being able to dismiss a millennialist text um, with just just that same way we talked about, um, there, I, there's just so many other passages I think that um, that indicate. Look, there, there is when we're reading the rest of the Bible, we see look there is a, a place in the Old Testament where it's talking about uh, this and this possibility. Um, and so you know, I'll, I'll read this. So this is a this is a really helpful book, by the way. It's by a guy named Matt Waymeyer. I don't actually know, and, but I bought this book. 
Shepherd's Conference. I read it. It's really good. Um, he critiques a lot of the two-age model. Uh, he goes through all of these passages and a bunch more that I didn't talk about and says some of this stuff. Um, but here's his, here's his conclusion after all of those verses that we talked about, because um, I think this is accurate. This is the way to think of it. In the Old Testament, passages considered in, cha- uh, in chapters 2 through 5 of this book, the prophets looked ahead to the glorious reign of the coming Messiah. During this time, the Messiah will reign as the king over the entire world, from Psalm 72, from Zechariah 14. Uh, also, all the kings of the earth will bow down before him, Psalm 72:11. All the nations of the earth will serve him, Psalm 72:11, Zechariah 14:16. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed by the exercise of his rule. Of his rule, that's more in Psalm 72, 16 and 17. Knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth, from Isaiah 11, and the whole world will be filled with his glory. He will reign, and I won't keep reading you all of the different passages, just you get the hint. He will reign in peace, justice, righteousness, and faithfulness, resulting in longevity of life and lasting peace and harmony among the nations of the world. The kingdom reign of Messiah portrayed in these passages clearly transcends what takes place in this present age and will not be ushered in until the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we see all of those things are true about this time that we just read about. But also, these passages contain features of the coming kingdom, which are incompatible with the perfection of the eternal state. For example, this kingdom reign of Messiah will include the existence of the poor, the wicked, the needy, the afflicted, enemies of God, and victims of violence and oppression. It will include physical birth and physical death, distinctions between the young and the elderly, physical weakness due to old age. (coughs) The nations will learn the ways of the Lord Uh, disputes will continue to arise between them and those who refuse to worship the king will be punished by the Lord. So we see both of those things present in in this state, in this place and all of those things when you combine them together and they're in the same passages, they're they, they can't, but they, we clearly, right, we don't see that now in this age. And it's some of that other stuff, affliction, those things, those are definitely not in the eternal state. Therefore, it calls for a deep, a need, a definite need for this pre, uh, for this, this millennium, this, this time when, uh, when Christ reigns, the, what we think, what we call the, the inauguration of, so if you want to do this age and the age to come, that we believe that the, when Christ returns and establishes the morning, that's the beginning of the age to come. We have no problem just kind of combining it. The age to come is everything after the return of Christ. It's not, that's not an issue. Um, uh, so, uh, in other words, what is strongly implied in the Old Testament prophets is then clarified and made explicit in the book of Revelation where the Apostle John reveals a thousand-year earthly reign um, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that, that's what, that's the, we, as we look at the Old Testament, we see finally in Revelation 20, aha, here's what, like we needed that section to make sense of those passages. And that's why... Uh, um, uh, all millennialists, if you see here, they can they need to be uh, uh, preterists or historists or something like that because uh, th- those passages they, they need to interpret them differently than, than literally to, to make to make it all make sense. So um, so what we see then in Revelation twenty 
Uh, how much time do we have left? Zero minutes. Uh, anyway, so I won't read that. Uh, but uh, what we see then in Revelation 21 through se- 1 through 7, uh, 20 verses 1 through 7, would make it hard to believe that what is being described is happening right now. So if we read through that, you, Satan being bound in a pit that he might deceive the nations no longer, and they have like, oh, that doesn't mean that. But that's not, that's not what's going on. Um, so... Premillennialism is, I believe, the best way to interpret Scripture in a way that doesn't pit Scripture against Scripture, but harmonizes it together. It's the only way that allows us to keep interpreting the Bible with a historical, grammatical way that we should. And so next week, when we actually really step into the book, we'll be looking at it with that understanding. Let me close in prayer quickly. Father, thank you so much for this time. Uh, Thank you. I I pray that this was uh, helpful. And in clarifying, and I pray that it will help us uh, to be better readers of your word. May we have a, uh, always have a posture and an attitude of those who humbly, submissively sit under the authority of your word and whatever it tells us. In Jesus' name, amen.